Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, April 28th, and today I'll be speaking with Julia Yaffe about how Joe Biden's calculus toward Ukraine has changed since the Russian invasion began. And later on in the show, Tina Wynn joins us to talk about what Elon Musk buying Twitter means for Donald Trump's social media app, Truth Social. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs & Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, our woman in Washington who is an expert in all things diplomacy and specifically these days, Russia and Ukraine. Julia, how are you doing this week? Oh, you know, just trying to keep up with, you know, the Groundhog's Day of the war in Ukraine. How are you? I'm I'm lovely. Thank you so much for asking. Um, you know, one reason I wanted to talk to you and talk to you every week is because here in the U.S. and we've talked about this, it feels like people are paying less and less attention to the goings on over there. And I feel like you can provide both a high level cliff notes for people who aren't following the news like they were a few weeks ago, but also go a little bit deeper. And the, the first thing I wanted to ask you was. What's the state of play this week over there? What's the latest big development that that Puck listeners should know about? Well, the latest big development was today, the day we're taping on Wednesday, Vladimir Putin threatened a very vague threat against the West and said, if you try to get in our way, we will respond swiftly with lightning precision. And he said, we have weapons that the West can't brag about. But we have them, but we won't brag about it, which is was a very um, humble, braggy way of saying we might nuke you, maybe. He also cut off gas to Poland and Romania because they, like many others in Europe, are refusing to pay in rubles, which Russia did in order to get back at the West for all the sanctions. They're not the biggest customers. Their contracts were set to expire this year anyway. It was kind of an easy target. A third mass grave was discovered from space in a little town outside of Mariupol, and authorities there have said that it's basically something like over 20,000 dead in Mariupol over the course of the last two months. One of your most recent pieces for Pac about all of this was about 
Sergei Lyshenko, who is one of Zelensky's advisors, and he made the point to you that the U.S. might think they're helping us and giving us all of these weapons and all this money and these tanks and ammunition, but we want more. They're not doing enough. We are the bulwark against a dictatorship, uh, and, and we need the U.S. to step up. That obviously makes a rather cautious Biden administration kind of cranky. It's like, hey, guys, come on. We're doing the best we can here. We are the superpower. We have a lot of pressures coming at us from all angles. But Joe Biden last week announced another $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. Uh, you write in your most recent piece that the total American military aid package is now $3.4 billion in just two months. And yet Ukraine continues to want more. Um, has that kind of stridency actually made Biden and made Blinken and made everyone else in the administration want to help out more? Or is it just making them cranky? Well, it made them really cranky before the actual invasion. And it was things like, you know, Zelensky coming to town and publicly demanding a lot of things of the Biden administration and putting a lot of pressure on them publicly. And then also publicly praising Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who at the time was holding up the administration's State Department and Pentagon nominations and people in the White House and Democrats on the Hill were like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Like, you know, and there, there was a general sense that Zelensky's team think they understand American politics. And I've heard this from other people as well, kind of people who report on, on Ukraine, that they think they really get American politics and they get Washington and they just kind of blow in here and come across as a little tone deaf and demanding. Uh, and this is a kind of common problem that you hear about in Washington, always behind closed doors. People will never say about this publicly about their allies because it's very hard even for me now to explain to you, you know, there's senior partners and junior partners in these kinds of relationships, especially when billions and billions of dollars of American taxpayer funded aid is at stake. And a lot of times these junior partners like the United Arab Emirates or Israel mm -hmm. forget their role in the relationship and their kind of status in the relationship, right? <laughs> um, so again, this is not something you would ever hear about publicly, but behind closed doors, there would be a lot of eye rolling at other partners or allies who would blow into meetings and be like, all right, you're going to give us this, you're going to give us that, uh, we demand this, we demand that. And the Americans would be like, okay, slow your roll, buddy. But now, you know, obviously the situation has changed. And even off the record, Biden administration officials, Democrats on the Hill, people close to those people won't even roll their eyes on background. There is a sense of like, yes, they're asking for more than we can give them, but what else are they going to do? Of course, like they're in the fight of their, like, what are they going to do? Okay, ruin the relationship with America, but okay, but they might not exist tomorrow, you know? And, and so like one thing that jumped out at me though from your piece was like what's changed in the Biden administration's calculus toward Ukraine is early on, it was like, okay, they're going to get rolled. How much should we give them? You know, these arms might end up in Russian yeah. hands. Like, uh, and now it's like, oh shit, like we have, we have no choice here. And a sternly worded letter from the Russian government uh, asking them to stop isn't going to do anything. Well, Putin, that's why he threatened the vague thing that he threatened on Wednesday. And that's why he's bombing rail depots and rail lines. And that's why a lot of the stuff that was shipped into Ukraine openly 
with a lot of PR around it early in the war and right before the war is now people are a little bit more careful and kind of vague about because now these are legitimate targets for Russian bombing. And it's interesting. It reminded me of what Serhi told me. He was telling me a story about how the Sunday before the invasion, they were at the Munich Security Council and everybody was being very nice to them. And they're like, oh, maybe he won't invade. Don't worry. And Radek Sikorsky, the former foreign minister of Poland and Applebaum's husband, basically told them, you're going to get invaded this week. And the only way other countries will start supplying you with weapons and taking you seriously is if you not just hold the Russians back, but inflict heavy, heavy casualties on the Russians. And that's exactly what happened, right? The Ukrainians surprised everybody by fighting Russians basically to a draw. And that's when the weapons really started pouring in and the administration's calculus of like, okay, it's very hard to keep track of the weapons we deliver in a fluid wartime situation, but you know, fuck it. So the last thing I want to ask you really quick, because we're running out of time, but on a slightly different topic, I've seen videos on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram of like Vladimir Putin holding onto a table and like grinding his teeth. And there's some people out there on social media saying, oh my gosh, is Putin sick? Is he ill? Um, Not that you know the absolute truth to that in any way, but is, is that something that's talked about it all over in Russia? Well, so next week's newsletter, I reveal Putin's medical records. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't have that. I wish. <laughs> and his tax records. <laughs> and, and his tax returns. Tax returns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I kid. Um, yeah, I saw that too. It, it, it's funny to see that kind of very Moscow phenomenon of guessing Putin's health that we saw before the war. I, a lot of my friends who used to be in Moscow, sending me videos of like, look at how he can't bend his leg when he places the wreath on this dumbass memorial, or look at how he's walking funny. He's about to die or he has Parkinson's or whatever. Now to see it yeah. kind of go global. I don't know. To me, he looks just like a normal 69-year-old Russian man. And um, <laughs> actually one who's pretty fit for his age. I think a lot of it is wishful thinking and readers of Tomorrow Will Be Worse will know the first couple of weeks of the war, I wrote a piece called The Death of Putin about this kind of wishful thinking and about how Putin dying, even if he died tomorrow, that won't necessarily end this war. Wars are very, as Americans know now too well, wars are very easy to start and very hard to finish. And the other fear is that We don't know who comes after Putin. Is he going to be worse than Putin? Is the person who comes after Putin going to make us miss Putin? And the one last thing I'll say is that the reason he might make us miss Putin, and it will definitely be a he, if you have a new Russian president tomorrow who becomes a wartime president, he has to show the Russian people and most importantly, the Russian security services and the Russian army and the Siloviki, the people who are Putin's real and only constituency, that he is strong and that he's strong enough to rule them and control them. And you don't do that by wrapping up a war as a loser. If anything, you might want to press harder to win something and show that you're strong. It's how Putin began his presidency to show the Russian people that he was strong and energetic and not a drunken, sick mess like Boris Yeltsin. He started a war in Chechnya that took four years to wrap up. 
Yeah, yeah. There's the wishful thinking reminds me of resistance folks like thinking that Trump was sick when they would exactly. see him like limping down a ramp or you know holding the glass with two hands. Speech. Yeah, exactly. The two hands thing. I fear they will both survive us all. <laughs> oh my god, I hate thinking about that so much. <laughs> It'll be them and the cockroaches. And this is why your column is called Tomorrow <laughs> Will Be Worse. Um, all right, Julia, thank you so much for all the FSB agents. Uh listening into Julia every week, you can subscribe to Puck <laughs> for just $100 a year, which is probably 10 bajillion rubles right now. Suckers. Um, all right. See you next week, Julia. Bye, Peter. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Tina Wynn on her beat right now. Thanks, Peter. So the only thing that really lives in my mind right now is Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, which means who's coming back on Twitter? Who are the deplatformed right-wing trolls who have been kicked off the platform for God knows how long? And of course, by that, we have to include former President Donald Trump, who was kicked off the platform after January 6th for inciting a riot, the really big one. And one of the things, apparently, that is on top of everyone's mind is, is Donald Trump going to go back on Twitter? Popular consensus was probably yes. Elon has some sort of nebulous idea of what free speech is. He hasn't articulated a particular uh, view. However, even before that happened, Trump preempted that with an announcement saying, I will be staying on Truth Social even if Elon invites me back onto Twitter. At first, people thought, okay, no, this is clearly some sort of bluff. I don't know what's happening here. Of course, Trump would go back on Twitter if he was allowed to. And then my Bill Cohan brain got working and I realized, wait a second, Trump launched a social media company that is connected to a special purpose acquisition vehicle thingy that's specifically meant to take companies public. And that company is already public. It's um, Digital World Acquisition Corp. And it's been trading at a market cap of about 1.2 billion. That is under the premise that Truth Social will be merged into that company and it will be Donald Trump's platform. So if Donald Trump leaves that platform, there's really going to be no company. Like, why would you invest in a platform, a social media platform, if the president of the United States who built that platform is not going to be on that platform? And Trump himself stands to make a ton of money off of this merger if it happens. Trump right now basically has to stay there. It's just a terrible idea for him to leave. One, he leaves money on the table. Two, he leaves behind a whole bunch of pissed off investors who invested on the premise that he was going to be there. They wanted to support the president, so they threw a lot of money at DWAC. I don't know internally whether there were some sort of non-compete clause or any sort of restrictions placed on Trump's activity in order to enter this merger. I haven't been able to find anything else about that, but I would imagine that 
there would be some sort of limitations on what he would be able to do outside of the business. Like his brand is super powerful, as one can see by the fact that this company is worth 1.2 billion on the stock market. And his brand is super powerful. And no one wants that brand to leave. So going on a platform where he would be able to post for free, providing monetary value to someone else's platform, making Elon Musk rich, is just absolutely not in the cards for anyone involved in the company, um, as in anyone involved in Truth Social, the Trump Media Technology Group, DWAC, what have you. Now, I'm sure Trump is regretting this in his heart because Twitter is just exponentially more important, not just symbolically, because his return would be a symbolic renunciation of big tech censorship, yada, yada, yada. But politically speaking, too, he's chained himself to this boondoggle of a platform that's kind of shitty and super janky and keeps crashing and it doesn't really work super well. So yeah, the way that uh, the headline on the story is Trump's $1.2 billion Twitter handcuffs. And that's basically true. For the short-term future, he cannot go do the thing he's supposed to do on the platform he built on another platform for free for someone else. That's just anti-competitive behavior, baby. Thanks to Phil Cohan for making my brain think in a merger acquisitions uh, framework for this, because I don't think I would have if I hadn't sat next to him for eight months. And uh, I'll let you know how this keeps going. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 